Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. I bring you greetings from Redeemer Church, and I consider it an honor to be up here this morning. We're going to be looking together at 1 Samuel chapter 5 and reading the 12 verses of that chapter. 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. And let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Will you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a self-revealing God, the God of truth. And we thank You that in this inspired and infallible book, You've given us Your will and the truth that we can believe and obey and receive. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will be present, enabling us to do that very thing because we need the Holy Spirit. May all that we do bring honor to the matchless name of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this is one of the more bizarre episodes in the history of the Israelite nation. It's strange, and yet it is full of redemptive and theological significance, I believe. We discover how Almighty God is able to defend Himself and to prove that He is absolutely sovereign. 
Here he shows his supremacy over this world's so-called gods by humbling the false god of Dagon. The Philistines were a formidable military power in constant conflict with Israel. And the Israelites thought that having the ark of God would bring them victory. It was a crass and mechanical perspective of this most sacred of religious objects. They were viewing the ark as some sort of lucky charm that might ensure them victory. It was a gold-plated chest, as you probably know, and in which were placed the two tablets of the covenant. And on top was the mercy seat where the high priest once a year would sprinkle the blood of the atonement. And it represented the very presence of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And the Jews thought that if they had the ark with them, they could defeat easily the Philistines. But as I said, it was a gross and thoughtless attempt at manipulating the true and living God. It was something that pagan nations often did, and Israel should have known better. They were to trust in the unseen God whom the ark was designed to represent. In other words, they were not to trust in the means, but the one who blessed the means. And with the ark ensconced in the midst of the army, Israel battled the Philistines, and their confidence soon withered away as their enemies began to rout them. And not only were the sons of Eli, the high priest, killed, but the Ark of the Covenant was seized. Yes, it was seized. (laughs) And when the high priest Eli heard that Israel was defeated, that his sons were dead, that the Ark was captured, he fell over and he died. The high priest. And with every earthly comfort stripped away, The unnamed wife of his son Phinehas gave birth to Ichabod, and she died. And as you probably remember, the name Ichabod means the glory has departed. So the Philistines marched home victoriously from Aphek with what they thought was a great war prize. The Ark of the Covenant was the heart and the soul of Israel's identity and public worship. And it served as God's earthly throne and a visible representation of his person, the true God. And now it seemed as if the Philistines had triumphed over the very ark of God. It was situated in the city of Ashdod, right in the temple of Dagon, their national god. And they were an intensely religious people, routinely celebrating their victories in the temple, And the ancient people, as history tells us, viewed the seizure of sacred objects as momentous events. Theoretically, what they thought was that the captured power of that god was available to the victors. So depositing trophies like this in the temple was a relatively common practice. For example, Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, put the Jerusalem temple vessels in the Babylonian temple. War prizes. It was to Dagon's temple that Saul's severed head was fastened. And the temple of Dagon was the scene of Samson's victory and ultimately his death. So Dagon was the chief god of their pantheon. He was pictured with the head and hands of a man and the trunk and the tail of a fish. Head and hands man, 
trunk and tail fish. And it was meant to symbolize the life-giving power of water and grain, or the fertility and crops. And he was the mythical father of Baal, the Canaanite god of fertility. The Philistines loved and depended and worshipped Dagon for their successes in war, and oftentimes they would sacrifice their grains to him. And so they placed the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the True and Living God, beside Dagon's throne as a coveted spoil of war. And thus the symbol of God's presence was made to stand next to Dagon as a conquered slave. And this is how they wished to honor Dagon and to humiliate the Hebrew God. What an approach to the name of Yahweh. What a disgrace to the symbol of his presence. It was also, I think, a rebuke to the superstitious Israelites who thought that they could manipulate God. More importantly, I believe it was a foreshadowing of the very sufferings of Christ himself. Of course, Jesus is not just a symbol. He is the very presence of God. And the devil sought to humiliate him by nailing him to the tree at Calvary. Christ would be humbled. He'd be humbled on a cross. And the God of this world would seem to triumph over him. But here in Dagon's temple, the Lord God would demonstrate his absolute supremacy over anything this world has to offer. Let me ask you something. What could be worse than the displeasure of an infinite, eternal, and almighty God? We're told by the apostle in Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those who oppose the true and living God can expect the heaviest of all judgments. Let me give you an example. Charles IX, King of France, under whose reign occurred the Bartholomew Massacre of the Huguenots. He shrieked as he died, and this is what he said. Nurse, nurse, what murder, what blood. Oh, I have done wrong. God, pardon me. It's truly a fearful and terrifying thing, I believe, to fall into the hands of the one who lives forever. Think of the punishment that he's capable of inflicting. It is an eternal lake of fire. That's beyond my ability to comprehend. Eternal lake of fire. Jesus talking with his disciples about the spiritual hazards with which this world is full. This is what he said. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That's our Lord who is speaking. And he knows what lies beyond the veil of death. The only way that a person, any person, can stand before the true and living God with any kind of shred of hope is to rely upon the merits of Christ. Outside of Jesus Christ, we're told in the Bible that there is no forgiveness, no acceptance, and no life. Again, let me give you an illustration. The Duke of Buckingham, who apparently was a professed atheist, 
made this confession as he died. I sported with the holy name of heaven. Now I am haunted by remorse, and I fear forsaken by God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And debasing the ark in this manner was a big mistake. It was a fatal error. The Philistines were walking in spiritual darkness, and as temporary victors over the Hebrews, they boasted over the Hebrews' God. They had no idea what they were doing. They were spiritually blind. Paul warned the Galatians when he said, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. And I think what he means by that is, according to how we live now, so will we be held accountable on that day then. Or to use the language of Paul again, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The Philistines learned the hard way just how accurate that statement was. As in the ten plagues of Egypt, so in the affliction of the Philistines, God humbled the false god. And since their idol had to do with harvests and health, that's where he focused. He humiliated Dagon, the fish god. And God taught them a valuable lesson. Oh, how the Philistines wanted to celebrate their victory by sacrificing to their God. Wouldn't that have been amazing for them? But there he was without head or hands. As Matthew Henry puts it, shall the ark, the symbol of God's presence, be a prisoner to Dagon, the dunghill deity? Not on your life. The true and the living God was not about to set aside his glory. And so Dagon was made to fall prostrate, not once, but twice in two successive days. The first morning, he was forced to bow before the sacred ark of Yahweh. Incapable of getting up himself, the priests had to set him upright. And then the second morning, Dagon again lay prostrate, but then with his head and his hands cut off. And the severed hands, I think, symbolized the utter powerlessness of this idol. God is supreme. And the severed head, I believe, was emblematic of the pledge to crush the devil's head by the seed of the woman. The false god was utterly destitute of any wisdom, any power, any life. And he could neither advise his worshipers nor act on their behalf. He was worthless. And the dismemberment of Dagon was a great victory for the God of Israel. And as you can imagine, a deep sense of dread began to shroud the people of Philistia. The psalmist says in Psalm 78, Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. You see, because Dagon was mutilated at the threshold, they considered it sacred. The folly of fallen human beings. One would think that what happened there in his temple would have convinced them of their pagan folly. He's, he's powerless. But it seems to have only hardened them even further in their idolatry. With superstitious fear, they refused even to step on the threshold with their feet. And as Paul tells us, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
But I think God's triumph did not end with Dagon, as you can see. It extended to his followers. In Egypt, he humbled the gods and their worshipers, and it was no different in Philistia. What they expected to be this great triumph turned out to be a defeat. And it's one of those ironic reversals that we find in Scripture. Have you ever heard that phrase before, ironic reversal? Just as the enemy thinks that he's won, at that very moment, he's defeated. The imprisonment of the Ark of God was the downfall of the false god Dagon. It says the Lord terrified and afflicted them with tumors. There was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. And the hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die, some of them did die, were struck with tumors. And these were malignant growths coupled with the bubonic plague. How do I know that? Well, later in chapter 6, they put together five golden mice, which represented the mice that ravaged the land. There was plague. So whether they were killed by plague or afflicted with tumors, they suffered and were punished. The longer they refused to acknowledge God, the heavier became the afflictions. Yahweh was marching through enemy territory in a victory procession. In the very place where his enemies were strongest, he easily conquered. Alone on their turf, represented by the ark, the living God demonstrated his almighty power. And it was not long before they were constrained to confess his supremacy. As Paul says, it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So I think as we look at this passage, one of the observations can be this, that we should joyfully acknowledge Yahweh to be the only true God and our God. That's our duty and that's our privilege. Reconciled in Christ, He's ours. Atheism and idolatry are heinous sins for which the sinner will be held accountable. We're all sinners. We're all by nature idolaters. The experience of the Philistines foreshadowed the final judgment to come. It foreshadowed other things too. But the final judgment to come. In Isaiah 45, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And that is one of the most fundamental truths of all in religion. There's one God. There is no other self-existent, self-sufficient, infinite, eternal being. The world is full of counterfeits, as you know, and I do too. Many false gods made in the image of man. But they're just that. They're false. There is only one true and living God. Isn't this what Jesus said in His high priestly prayer? This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true and living God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Our God is the true God, made man in His image, made man to glorify His name. And I think it's significant that pride of place in the Ten Commandments, is given to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Scripture condemns idolatry, clearly, consistently, from beginning to end. 
And yet this is the natural tendency of fallen man. It's my natural tendency, and it's yours too. The sinful human heart has been described by some as an idol factory. And it's the folly of sinful man to make for himself lifeless, worthless gods. Claiming to be wise, says the apostle, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So both the Lord and false idols are suitors for your heart and mine. And let's face it, idols already have our first love by nature. It's not easy to loosen their grip on the human soul. And the Lord seeks our love as believers, and He's determined to recover it. We can't enjoy both of them together. Nobody can serve two masters. So God sets before us a choice. He won't fill the heart without our consent. Now, you and I both know that the Spirit of God is the only one who can enable us to give consent. But give consent we must. And so Joshua says to those around him, Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that passage that your pastor read earlier, very profound. Paul says in that passage that God will punish the unbelieving idolater with increasing severity. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, number one. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, number two. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, number three. He abandons them and ceases to restrain them and lets them act out their sinful desires. And I'll tell you one thing, there is no greater judgment in this world than being left to follow your own desires. The unbelieving world thinks it's freedom. It's slavery. The ark of God and Dagon cannot stand together. If we set up the ark, Dagon must fall. Because as Paul tells us, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Do you know what that word Belial means? It's a term for Satan. And it means literally without yoke. The devil is without yoke. He's rebellious and disobedient and defiant. He's the prince of devils and the leader of fallen angels and the enemy of Christ. And Dagon was merely a pagan idol behind which was the devil himself. There can be no partnership between pagan idolatry and Christianity. One must choose. It's an all-important choice. The stakes are high, as you know. That's why you're here. Our eternal destinies depend and will be fixed according to whom we serve and worship. Today, we may not be fashioning statues of wood and stone, at least I hope you're not. 
But we're still tempted to serve idols, aren't we? Anything in this life, even things that are otherwise good, can be idolized. It might be a spouse or a child. It can be a job or some position in society. It can be fame or worldly pleasures. Anything allowed to occupy the preeminent place in our affections is an idol. And sometimes I think it's difficult for us to discern whether or not we're slipping into it. You might agree with me. Does it cause you to shirk your duty to God? That's an all-important question. Does it interfere, for example, with worship? Something you'd rather do than to show up on a Sunday morning. We must never place our things on the same level, side by side, with His sacred things. He's God. We're His creatures. Whether it's marriage or family, whether it's business or sport, or any other earthly good or comfort, He alone is God. He is infinitely above everything else, and He deserves the first position. And indeed, it says in Ecclesiastes that He has put eternity into man's heart. And only God can fill that space in the soul. That's why an idol, whatever it is, will always prove unsatisfactory. It will not satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. It will make you miserable because it will deaden your soul. I think that's what the psalmist means in Psalm 115. This is what he says. He's talking about those who make idols. Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. That's why Jacob said to his house, put away the foreign gods among you and purify yourselves. And this is not merely an emotional attitude toward God, but this all-inclusive devotion. It is a call, a summons, to honor and obey Him in every sphere and relationship of our lives. Everything must be determined by our love to Him, and nothing ought to be withheld from Him. Whatever you do, says Paul, do all to the glory of God. And that's what I mean. Christianity should be the ruling principle of life, and nothing should be isolated. But I have to be honest with you, My devotion is so weak, it's so discouraging. How meager is my service to the living God? I don't serve Him with one-tenth of the devotion that He's worthy to receive. And that's tragic. By contrast, the sinner, the unbelieving sinner, he serves his master with 100% of his heart, 100% of the time. Totally devoted. Flavel, one of my heroes, a Puritan, says this, and I quote, Heathen will do more for a dunghill deity than you that call yourself a Christian will do for the true God who made heaven and earth. And I find that true in my own experience. The Philistines praised their God and they served Him with a whole heart and Dagon was extolled in Philistia. 
That's why you and I should pray for God to grant us this all-inclusive devotion to our Savior. That's the first observation. But secondly, I think we should be encouraged by the ark's triumph, which foreshadowed the victory of Christ. As we noted, the Bible is full of ironic reversals, of which this episode is just one. And oftentimes, God overturns the world's wisdom by doing the very opposite of what's expected. And this may have happened in your life. Israel was defeated. The ark was next to Dagon. The Philistines appeared victorious. And all seemed lost when the ark was set beside Dagon's throne. And yet the very thing for which the Philistines rejoiced became a snare to them. The ark did not do for the Philistines what it had done for Israel. For the Jews it had long been a blessing, but for the Philistines it became a curse. And the folly and the worthlessness of the pagan idol was vividly demonstrated. And of course, this ironic reversal was simply a precursor to the greatest ironic reversal of all time. And you know what I'm talking about. All seemed lost when Jesus Christ gave up his spirit on the cross in Judea. The disciples were downcast because they thought Christ had been defeated. And all their hopes were dashed. And it seemed as if at that point the devil had finally triumphed. Do you remember the words of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had been hoping... But now that flame of hope was almost extinguished. And yet, ironically, the death that seemed so disheartening was the very means of victory. Paul says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And that, therein lies the reason for our inexpressible joy as believers. In his attempt to destroy Jesus... The devil actually destroyed himself. And it was an ironic reversal of cosmic proportion, contrary to all expectations. Victory through death. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Every effort by the devil to thwart God's plan only served to advance it. And the very way that he tried to derail redemption was the very means to accomplish it. The final act began with the agony in Gethsemane and it ended at the cross of Calvary. And Jesus lived to fulfill the requirements of the law and he died to satisfy the demands of justice. And in so doing, he stripped Satan of any legal ground to accuse you and I. Revelation 12 says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, stripped of any legal ground to accuse you and me. That's why the assurance of pardon that he read is so important. You're forgiven. No condemnation. By the cross of Christ, God disarmed the devils and put them to open shame. And who expected it? The prophets predicted it, but nobody anticipated it. 
And yet, through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. Spurgeon said this, To the eye of reason, the cross is the center of sorrow, the lowest depths of shame. How different to the eye of faith, a token of glory, a field of triumph, the chariot in which Christ rode when he led captivity captive. So right there in Satan's backyard, he defeated him by shedding his blood. And he is the victory of our life and our joy and the reason for our praise and thanksgiving. And the question this morning is simply this, do you trust in this Christ? The offer of salvation is free. And the terms of salvation are plain. And all you need do is trust in him. And the inheritance that he spoke of is yours. And just as Jesus triumphed cosmically over the devil, so he triumphs personally over sin. And I'll close with these thoughts. When the Spirit renews the heart, he's able to triumph over every false idol. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by, to those that by nature are not gods. But the Spirit of God is able to produce within the soul a heartfelt desire for Christ. He tells the Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's the sincere Christian. And only the Christian who is able to enjoy a sense of God's grace and love. Psalmist says, O taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. This taste of Christ's transcendent goodness is able to wean us from idols. There is this hidden excellence. I believe you know what I'm talking about. This hidden excellence in Jesus that the unbelieving world sadly cannot taste. Thomas Chalmers, one of the Scottish theologians of the 19th century, put it this way, it is the expulsive power of a new affection. There is nothing that can deliver you and I from idol worship but a greater love than the love we have for sin. And that's what the Spirit gives. It's the expulsive power. It expels everything else of a new affection for Christ. In God's appointed means, there is this beauty and this treasure that captivates the soul. David said this, you know the psalm in 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why, David? That I may gaze upon His beauty and inquire in His temple. Once you make Christ your treasure, He fills your head, your heart, and your hands, your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. Is it so with your soul? I know that your pastor faithfully preaches week in and week out. He holds forth the beauty of Christ. I pray that it's that way for you. If not... Press eagerly into the inner court of religion, as some would put it. 
Because as Jesus said, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. You're not passive, you're active. Has it been slow going for you? Is it not the victory that you expected? Are you, like me, sometimes struggling in your walk with Christ? Keep pursuing. Keep seeking Christ. Look to God for strength. And as Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May God enable all of us to do so in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the very temple of Dagon himself, you proved your supremacy. And it was a foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus Christ who conquered through death. We thank you for him and for everyone here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.